Welcome to the Dundee Football Podcast. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Hugo Schechter, the player liaison officer at West Ham United, having previously had roles at Southampton and across the pond in the States. We talk about his career, the fun times he has in the football industry, and some advice he'd offer to people wanting to get into the sports and football space too. I hope you enjoyed. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Dundeal uh, podcast. Um, it's more than just a podcast to be pleased to know because we've actually got um, uh, one of my guests, Hugo, on a Zoom call as well. So we're going to make some video content of this. Um, Hugo is, um, I say, a good pal. Like I think we are. I think we class ourselves as good pals. Like we've yeah, known each other for maybe two or three years now. We we get together pretty often. Um, we always just share war stories, maybe about the industry a bit as well. <laughs> And yeah. um, I've been wanting to do this for ages. So thank you very much, Hugo, for getting involved. Um, so Hugo Schechter is basically one of the, um, the, 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 the guys that I turn to most in the industry to a degree because, you know, he is the guy front um, and center that um, is a player liaison officer first with um, Southampton and, and now with West Ham. What I'm not going to do really is focus on on the stuff he does generally with West Ham and, and, and previously with Southampton because a lot of the stuff that I want to talk about with you, if that's all right, pal, is talking about your experiences in the industry, um, how you went about getting to where you got to now and the effort um, to maintain uh, those levels as well, if that's all right. So firstly, yeah. thank you very much for coming on. Much appreciated. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Um, and... So I think that the place that I would like to start, I mean, I don't feel like I want to be a psychiatrist at the moment is your childhood. <laughs> but like, I, I remember when I was growing up, for example, um, I wanted to do something in sports or in football. I probably, as a lot of people, wanted to be a footballer and I was never going to be that way. Um, mm. Growing up, what was your idea about what you actually wanted to do? Um, were there some idealized versions of what you wanted to do or was it always you wanted to get involved in the sports industry in some way? I mean, when I was really young, I used to, I wanted to be a Formula One driver um, and never really ever got into go-karting. Um, I actually, my dad once said that uh, if I lost enough weight to fit in a go-kart, he'd let me go-kart and uh, never did that. So uh, this is like child psychology, but no, it was, uh, yeah, until I was about 10 or, 10 or 11, I think I was always reading like, uh, sorry, Formula One magazines and trying to like really wanted to do that. And then... Um, I never had a I never had anyone who liked football in my family, so I always kind of was just bored of it. And then um, I was more of a sort of computer nerd kind of guy. And then um, my friend bought round a Football Manager one night. I was a Championship Manager as it was mm -hmm. then, and um, we played it. And he was just beating me because he knew all the players, and I thought that's really annoying. So over the summer, I got um, I got really into like uh, Championship Manager 2001, I think it was. And um, learned all the players and read Match Magazine and, and watch Match of the Day as you do as a kid. And when he came back and played a couple months later, I knew all the players and I was much better than him. So um, it kind of kept my love of football started from actually Championship Manager and getting into that um, and doing it as a way to win at a computer game, which was much more my speed. Um, and then as I got more into the sort of organisational side and, and the, then I started doing coaching and then I wanted to be a football manager and like coach at the highest level as a, as a first team manager. And then obviously that's changed into something where I'm not really involved in the football side at all, but uh, probably for the better. But yeah, a couple of different things, but it tends to always be around sport despite not being very sporty myself. 
And that sort of leads on quite nicely because I remember when we first uh, started chatting about your then um, experiences in the States as well as a sort of um, breeding ground for, I guess, your interaction on the, the sports management side, the football management side, the football admin side, which then almost took you to your first steps into the, the, the soccer world um, mm-hmm. eight side. It'd be just fascinating just to hear about how, how that sort of happened and that transpired. Yeah, I mean, I, I was at school, I was at boarding school in Surrey and, um, you know, was kind of trying to find my niche and, and really was struggling, to be honest. Um, and the head of football there, um, a guy called Malcolm Bailey, he suggested I do my level one coaching badges, um, which I did at, at the school. And um, he, they gave me a, a under-14s team. I was sort of 17 then. They gave me an under-14s team to to run and it was the D team and it was they were rubbish. And we, but we had a really good laugh, you know, and that kind of gave me my my hunger for I think actually this is quite quite a good laugh and I'm actually not bad at it either um I think we went, went unbeaten that season or, or lost one game and then they promoted me to an under 18s team which being 17 18 myself and basically coaching my my classmates that was a real experience and I think that one of the best lessons in people management I ever had because I had the guy who sit next to me at business studies class and I'd be like, Oh, can I, can you, can I borrow your homework? And he'd be like, well, no, cause you dropped me on, on, you know, you didn't play me on, on Saturday or whatever. <laughs> so that was weird where I was like their, their boss on the football pitch and obviously their mate off the field and a teach, uh, I was a pupil, but also like level with the teachers. And it was a really odd kind of weird thing, but I was, I was 17, 18. I was coaching, you know, effectively a senior team. Um, and that was a really, really cool experience. And, so I went out to university in America, uh, the George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C., and I did my sports business degree. I've, I've never been academic. Like, I've been, you know, I, I like to be educated on the world, and I like to know about what's going on, and I like to read sort of news and stuff like that, but never been someone who can sit and, you know, write essays or do books. And um, But I think I've got a decent level of common sense. And so I went out to America Firstly, to be have to have a good time. <laughs> that was the most important thing, and, and secondly, try and just get an experience because American unions have a really good um, sort of off the field kind of um, off the field such a football term. But uh, you know, like a, everything around the the, the the university, there's so much extracurricular stuff. There's a lot of money in student organisations, and so I got really heavily involved in that. Um, six weeks into my freshman year, became president of the cricket team took them to nationals for the first time three, three, four months later. I didn't even like cricket. I still don't really like cricket, but it was an opportunity and we had a great time and we really professionalized. And then the, the soccer team, the men's soccer team had a, um, a they were looking for a general manager. So I applied and got it. And again, then I was back to coaching football and any opportunity I could to get experience, practical experience, whether it was running for student government, running for um, starting up an organization to protect athletes, um, the the football team, I'd, I coached a women's football team at high school locally. Um, I'd go to coaching conventions. I'd watch, you know, podcasts and, and, and videos and websites and meet people and everything. And I was just basically got fully into the, the sports management side and my classes were fine, but I graduated with a fairly average grade. I don't think I've ever been asked my grades in, in my life. Um, but I got graduated with not only good experiences, um, but also, you know, good, good life experience good life experience but also good connections um my professor there was is the, the preeminent olympic professor in the world so she goes for the last 20 years she's been to every olympics uh, we came and studied the london 2012 olympics and that was fascinating to have be the only university to get that access so it was great and then 
went to um, Indianapolis, um, got my first job. Again, I, you know, I assumed that I'd, I'd interned at, while I was at uni at Southampton and the FA while coaching, and I figured that I'd graduate uni and have clubs fighting over me. I thought, man, you know, Man United would be coming in, Chelsea would be, no, we want to pay them more, and, and it didn't happen, and I was really, really struggling. Um, I think I did, like, 95 job applications in the end. Didn't even hear back from any of them until... Uh, the Indy 11 called me, which was a startup NASL team, which was then the second division um, in America. And um, a guy called Peter Wilt gave me a call and said, would I be interested in joining them as team operations manager? Not really been to Indianapolis a whole lot before, um, moved out there. But, you know, at that point, I was already living back on my, on my parents' farm, ready to go and work on a farm. And because I couldn't find a job and it had been three or four months since I graduated, and I was like, look, I can probably give us a go for another couple of weeks and then I'm going to have to give it up. And luckily I got um, the job at Indy and then, you know, after eight, nine months went to Southampton and now I'm at West Ham. But, you know, it's, I, you know, my journey's basically been about giving stuff a go and, and, and being in the right place at the right time, effectively. Well, I think, I think it's probably fair to say from my experience, you're probably underplaying some of that to a, <laughs> to a degree, but... Um, the thing that I found fascinating about when we were chatting about your time in India especially was there was a small team that basically had to set up a, um, an organization in a pretty short space of time. Yeah. And you were one of those integral members of that organization doing ticket sales to marketing to everything that revolved around effectively running the match day operation. So I'd just be fascinated from a sort of career skills perspective. How did that then stand you in pretty good stead for then the roles that you've had back in the Premier League club since that time? So I think my my time at uni, I, I was the president of everything that I did. So I was the, the one in charge and I was always quite dictatorial, I think would be a fair way to put it. So what hap- what I wanted to happen, happened. And that's what we did. And if you didn't like it, bugger off. We've got you know another 100 kids who want to join the football team or the cricket team, whatever it is. And so to move then to an organization where I was bottom of the rung straight out of uni, I think that can always be a bit of a shock where you, you kind of feel like, oh, I know everything leaving uni. And, and like, I felt like that way. And I'm sure everyone else feels that way as well. And um, that was a bit of a shock. But it was such an experience in terms of building a franchise from nothing. I mean, it was, I arrived and we had the head coach and the goalkeeper and nothing else. We had no training ground. We had no, we were building, we were sorting out the stadium. We had no training ground. We had no players. We had no kit. We had no anything. And so you're, that doesn't exist in England. You don't just build franchises from nothing. And, and luckily, the guy who was president, uh, general manager, Peter Wilt, he'd started the Chicago Fire back in the early MLS days. So he knew what he was doing. He's, that's what he does. He's, he's excellent. Um, but it was an experience because, yeah, we were, I was ordering the kit. I was doing player contracts. I was working with FIFA to do transfer certificates, um, international transfers. I was going at 6 a.m. to buy the Gatorade for the training ground. I was sweeping up afterwards. I was trying to find housing for players. I was booking pre-season. I was this. And like, it was something where you were like, at the time it was, to be honest, horrific. Like, I I really didn't enjoy it there because, um, I mean, the, the pay wasn't good, but that's kind of what minor league sports in America is. It's your first job, you suck it up. But I didn't know people there, but we, I was working, you know, like crazy hours, crazy days, but I wouldn't trade that for, I would never go back, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because it made me appreciate not only how, 
how it can be, you know, when you're not in the Premier League, when you're not at Southampton or West Ham, how it can be in the lower leagues, but also to give my an opportunity to give everything a go and to see how, like, well, if we'd had more money, I would have done this better. I would have prioritised the money because we, we had no budget. So we had a, quite a low budget. Um, I guess in the league, we're about average, but, you know, compared to what we spend in the Premier League, it was nothing. So, you know, we, we signed a school teacher as a, a, as a, a player. We signed Kleberson, the, the World Cup winner in 2002. We had such a weird mix of, of, of players and the, the coaching was weird and everything was just weird. And, but I really learned a lot of how not to do things and not because people were making the wrong decisions, just because you had to do things in a certain way because of the budget and what the league was expecting and, the, you know, and how it was supposed to be run. But it was a fascinating time, hard, hard work, like the hardest I've ever worked. Um, I think I did 53 days in a row with one, without a day off at one point. But you know what? Like I learned a hell of a lot and I, I wouldn't ever wish to not have done it. So at that point then, um, you've you sort of had your baptism of fire. Um, yeah. You come back to um, the UK. How do you go about getting that first job? Um, it's not really an entry-level job, but quite a, um, a significant job um, at Southampton as an EPL um, club and then using all of those skills, all of those things that you've learned and picked up along the way to effectively um, um, be assisting the club with all of their players day to day and dealing with everything that comes along. How, how did that transition then feel and how did it come about? So I'd been interning at Southampton while I was at uni. So they kind of knew me. I was only there for about two, three weeks one summer. It wasn't a very long internship, but I was with the 18s and apparently made a, a big enough impact that um, Les Reed at the time was, was you know, looking for someone and, and remembered me and thought if I'd be interested. I mean, Ronald Koeman, when he went there, he couldn't believe they didn't have a team manager, as he would recall it. Um, I don't think that I would have been what he was looking for, to be honest. I think he was expecting someone who'd been at the club for years, who kind of knew the league, and not this this kid straight from American uni who never worked a game in the Premier League in his life and was suddenly in charge, you know, not in charge, but, you know, running things in the first team. And But anyway, um, it was an interesting experience. Um, player care didn't really exist, or it, it existed in a different form, you know, seven years ago. So... Um, it was a lot of sort of one-man bands at certain clubs. Um, I think Southampton were one of the last to get a player liaison. Um, but in reality, like, some clubs have, have done it really well for years and some clubs still don't do it very well. Um, but it was a new role. There was no one had done it before. The club secretary, um, who was my boss, she had done sort of a bit of the relocation bits. Um, but obviously, when it was my job to focus on it full-time, there was so much more I could do. But it was a massive shock in terms of going from a club with 13 staff to going to a club with 400 staff or whatever we had at Southampton. I mean, that was just, when I first started, I was like, is this all I've got to do? Like, is this only, like I've only got to worry about this tiny, like tranche of, of work. And, and really by the end, I was like, God, I need some help. Um, but I think that was a massive shock in the fact that there wasn't a porter cabin for a training ground. There was a beautiful Marcus Lieber pavilion, 27 million pound investment. Uh, custom building there was you know how we get into games it wasn't two stops on a commercial flight it was a charter plane and that also having having a league that with all due respect no one really cared about in the NASL you know you have the local fan groups but to have something that genuinely the whole world cares about in the Premier League was a massive massive shock and again I, I wasn't really a Southampton fan but to look at these guys and meet these guys that I'd looked up to or watched on TV for years I was like 
that's Morgan Schneiderlin, that's Jose Font, that's whoever, you know, and, and that was like, wow. But once you get over that, and I think that's really important to say to people is you can have those internal, oh my God moments. And I, I'm sure that even you, you've had some of those, you know, somewhat recently, but um, you have those moments occasionally, but you keep them internalized. Um, and once I got over that, I was kind of learning because luckily I didn't have anyone who'd been in the role before. So it wasn't expectations. There wasn't like, this is how he used to do it or she used to do it. It was, what do you want to do? And so I was able to really, like I, I'd, I'd been done some work experience at Everton um, with the guy Bill Ellaby who used to be there and just seen how he did it. And I was like, that's great. I'm going to take some bits, but I'm not going to do it his way because he was, you know, like late 60s, very different person to me. And you know what? My, my priority was to get that first person in the changing room to trust me because footballers are normally quite slow to trust. And especially when there's someone new coming in, they, they kind of closed you out or they don't want to talk in front of you or they're trying to work out, is this guy a good guy, a bad guy, trustworthy, whatever. And so the first couple of days, no one would really speak to me. So it was kind of like, okay. Then one of the players was like, I went around to one, one or two of the players and I said, look, is there anything I can do to help you at all? Anything you struggle with? And one of them was like, I think it was something with his driver's license. He couldn't get the new address on there or something like that. So within like an hour, it was sorted. And I went back to him like, this is sorted. And he's like, oh, thank you. What do I owe you? And I said, oh, no, nothing at all. Just can you say quite loudly that I did a really good job for you? <laughs> and so he's like, okay, sure. And he's like, wow, Hugo, thank you. That was fantastic. And then there's something like, oh, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And then obviously three and a half years later, I was in a great position there. But um, that for me was, it was mad to be, going from an Indy 11 game, you know, with 10,000 people to at St. Mary's of 35,000, 33,000, whatever it is, to go to then Old Trafford and whatever. And my first game was an 8-0 win against Sunderland, which was just unbelievable. To win 8-0 on your first game was just ridiculous. But that season, we, we finished like sixth, um, qualified for Europe. Unbelievable. And it was just a really, really massive jump. But luckily, I was able to grow with the role. And tell me then, because I, I know that um, we, we've been lucky enough to give actually a few careers talks together, um, talk about our experiences of, um, of building up expertise and otherwise. One of the things that I think is really important to sort of note, if not to put a downer on any of the conversations we have, but is like, you know, the glamour of uh, what people see of working in football sometimes isn't necessarily aligned with the reality of working in the, in the football industry generally and that it can sometimes be a bit of an unrelating, unrelenting uh, 24-7 um, experience. I know that's probably, if not more so, your experience too. How do you prepare for that and how do you then um, get used to that 24-7, um, that 365 day a year existence? I don't think you can, can actually prepare for it. I think you just almost get dragged along with the ride and you either step up and you, you cope with it or you get thrown off. And there are plenty of people who, who actually respect a hell of a lot because they've gone, you know what, I can't do this. I can't work in football. I don't want to do this. Um, but it's not, it, it's, it's glamorous in, in some parts. I think the initial buzz of going to Old Trafford and you walk down the tunnel at Old Trafford and you walk out and there's 80,000 people and you're like, wow, this is cool. And then you win there and you're like, wow, this is even cooler, you know? And then, but by year seven, I've done 400 odd games. Like I, I really don't look forward to games or get excited for games. I get excited for games if I know they're an easy hotel, an easy journey that like Leicester away. That is one of my favorites because it's easy. You're on the bus, you get there, the hotel's nice, you get there, the people are friendly and you go. Uh, 
Man United, I know it's going to be a disaster because Manchester Airport's a, you know, a nightmare for us. So it's, it's, I look at them in different ways now. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is full on. I mean, at, at uni, I would do like three half days a week and I'd be shattered by Thursday afternoon and think, God, I need a four-day weekend. Now I get a single day off and I'm like absolutely buzzing and refreshed. And obviously now I'm, I'm kind of working from home, but it's not that hectic during this this pandemic. And, and for me, it's been a nice opportunity to sort of switch off and get time that I never would normally with my family. But yeah, you, I mean, I, I work 42 weekends a year. I don't get a choice when I take my holiday. For example, if the seasons are likely to be condensed together, that's my holiday gone. Like I don't get another opportunity for holiday. Um, Christmas Day, I've worked the last seven years. So it, it's... There is there is so much that you miss, and whether it's friends' weddings or or birthdays or you know my nephews walking for the first time, you miss all of that because football is all encompassing, and I, I think that is something where you you kind of get sucked into it, and you you kind of get it, it's almost get it's almost addictive because you just like you miss it if it's not there. I think obviously there's times you miss it more times than others. Um, but yeah, I don't think you can prepare for it, but I think it's a shock when you're getting calls at two in the morning and it's, it's it's something completely irrelevant or it might be something really important, but people, there's no such concept as like, I'm off. Don't talk to me or I won't answer my phone because yeah, you know, the clubs say, yeah, you you know, turn off your phone if you're off. And I appreciate that, but in reality, it's not, it's not possible. So 24 hours a day, except maybe when I'm on holiday in the summer, my, my phone's on and I'm on call. And tell me then also, I mean, I, I completely agree with all of that actually, is um, the, the idea generally, I know you're pretty um, giving of your time to a lot of students and people that will message you and say, Hugo, I want to be a player liaison officer or I want to work in football. What advice would you give me? Um, what, what should I be doing in order to follow up my passion? Um, how should I go about using my right skills and how to approach applications and, and lots of different ideas to get into sports and football generally? I've heard it a few times already, but I know for a huge amount of people, they won't have heard it for the, uh, yeah. at all. And it would just be great to have your insight as to what, you know, what are the types of, firstly, non-negotiables that you think are really important. And then after that, what are the types of character traits or skill sets that you think then you know, work well accordingly? I think it's really important. Um, my, my professor at, at university told me this, and it's one of the few things I actually listened to in a classroom. But um, the first thing is that you've got to be willing to move anywhere for your first job. Um, you know, if you say you only want to live in London, well, that's great. But there's six, seven professional clubs in London. There are thousands of clubs outside of London, around the world, whatever. And, and I think when people are like, yeah, you know, I would love to work in football and then a job at Huddersfield comes up and you're like, well, actually, I don't fancy Huddersfield really that much. I'm not going to apply. For me, that's when I'm disinterested in helping you because for me, like, I didn't want to move to Indianapolis. You know, I, I have friends there, but it's not a place I really wanted to live. Um, and even Southampton, I, you know, there wasn't a lot for me there outside of work. And I basically put in six, seven, five or five, six years of living in place I didn't want to until I got to live in a place I do want to. Um, so I think that's really important. I think the self-starter um, attitude is really good. I had a student message me on LinkedIn. As, as you said, I do try, like, and especially in this, in this time, I've tried to get back to everyone. Um, and I got a message saying, um, uh, I'm studying player care. Can you give me some information on what you do? And I'm like, that's really vague. Like, that's really vague. And you, what, what, what do you want me to say? I was like, do you have any specific questions? And I'll try and answer them. And he was like, nah, just like what you do and stuff. And I'm like, I just ignored it. Cause I'm just like, 
like come on like help help me help you sort of thing um but there's some really really good people who've been really proactive and really get involved and and i think it's important to make a connection but not only to make the connection but keep the connection and to make sure you stay in touch not an irritate your mouth i don't want to hear from you like every two days but like every couple of weeks every month or if something happens at west ham or on the in player care and you think oh let me send this to hugo we'll see what he's doing Great, you know, like, and the people that you remember are the ones you'll help recommend for a job. And Dan, I'm sure you're the same way. If you've met someone five years ago at a networking event for 30 seconds and they email you, oh, hello, mate, I, I saw you got a job at Sheridan's. Can you recommend me for it? And you're like, I don't even know who this person is. Or you're looking through your messages trying to work out who they are. I think it's really important to, to make a connection and stay in touch um, in, in a way that makes you memorable and also positive because I get asked quite a lot, you know, do you have anyone good for this role, this player care role? And I've managed to place a couple of people at some good clubs. And luckily, so far, touch wood, they've, they've gone well. But I can't recommend people uh, if I don't recommend them. And a lot of people think, oh, it's just an email. Can you just send it? Well, actually, you and I both know that your reputation is hugely important. And if you're recommending rubbish people, you'll get rubbish. And sometimes I recommend someone, I'll say, listen, I'm not sure about them, but I think you should talk to them because they might work for you. And that actually... Has happened a few times where I've not really been convinced. I thought, look, I'm going to caveat this, but speak to them, and they've actually got the job and, and done really well. In terms of characteristics, I think for me that the biggest is, is the the people skills and charisma, um, especially when you're doing player care around players. If you haven't got the the personality to stand up and not just like you don't want to get into a fight with these guys, but fight for yourself and, and fight your own corner and give a bit back, you'll get eaten alive. And you sometimes get some really good people who contact me and, and, and diligent and you can tell they're hardworking and they're, but you just think you've not got that spark to command a room of 28 footballers who are all big egoed, all, you know, celebrities in their own right who are, who are you know, are having themselves. And I, I've been very lucky now to work for three professional clubs and have gone in and managed to turn a change room to, to be on my side pretty quickly in each one and it's different for each player and I think to understand what a person is like and very quickly from meeting them decide okay this person will work best with this per with, with this approach it's about finding out that, that mix I think you've got to have that naturally or you've got to, you know you learn those skills very quickly but that's really really important because you can be you can speak eight languages you can be organized as anything you can be diligent you can be trustworthy and everything like that but if you haven't got those skills and you're not gonna be able to translate it I think the final thing is that you're you're completely trustworthy and transparent, and and that's what I found is that it can take you you know years to build up your reputation. You can lose it in one day. And a great bit of advice I got told uh, when I was at Southampton was, um, if I told you Hugo that there was an, a newspaper article coming around coming out tomorrow about player care, and it's a it's bad. It's about how bad player care is at different clubs would you be able to sleep that night? And if you would, great, crack on. If you wouldn't, you need to change what you're doing straight away. And I've always thought, and I'm always like, you know, cleaner than clean. And, you know, my, my team, I've got a really strict policy on no gifts. So, like, we get a mug, like a, like a literal coffee mug sent in, I'll post it back. We get wine, it's at Christmas, post it back. I've spent a fortune posting wine. You know how expensive it is to post wine? <laughs> The bloody fortune because it's so heavy, and I get a cake, a, like a case you're of. You're posting back the empty bottles or the full bottles, though. <laughs> full bottles, the full <laughs> bottles. But I'm just like, 
I will use suppliers because they're the best, not because I'm getting a kickback or I'm getting a percentage or I'm using them because we have a, we have a crew supply list. We go through all the processes. And then I know that if there's a problem with the player and a supplier that I've used, I want them to go like, look, I don't want them to any, like if, if I've, if I've got a problem with a car and I, I'm driving a free car from the company, they're going to be like, well, of course you're on their side. Like, you know, you're getting a free car. Whereas I want to always make sure that everything I, you know, I pay for it. I'm, I'm open on that. And, and we have a clear list and a clear reason why we use each supplier. And on the odd occasion there are issues, there's no, there's no accusations aimed at us. It's, it's, we know you guys did the right thing. We know you don't, we just need to sort this out. And that for me is massively, massively important. No, it's, I think that's definitely right. And I think you're exactly right on the on the networking and career points. I mean, I remember when we gave that talk at Birkbeck a while back and we said, I remember to the crowd of people and there was a great crowd. They were certainly weren't there for me. They were almost certainly there for you and, and the other guys was, um, you know, keep in touch with us afterwards yeah. and tell us how you're doing. Be, be practical, be pragmatic, be, you know, um, proactive on all the things you're doing. Um, and the, the, the fascinating thing that I find about human nature generally is everybody wants to talk to us afterwards. Like you, I remember you and Essen, who we, we had the session with, there was literally queues, yeah. you know, 20 deep in order to have that chat with you. Whilst at the same time, human nature is such as that I would presume that there aren't probably five people that kept in touch with you from that session inside the year. So I definitely think the thing that I find and I try and, emphasize to people wanting to get in the profession is it's it's easy to make a connection it's incredibly hard to maintain a relationship and yeah. it's that network which will usually stand you in pretty good stead yeah and i i think you you made a great point at that um that conference is is to offer something that you can do to help if you're trying to get someone's attention whether it's someone more established like myself or you or or someone else anyway is, is is rather than just asking for something straight off the bat, asking if there's something to do to help. And actually, I don't have anything to help and I'll help people anyway, but I really like that that point that you made that actually it's good to offer something first before just trying to take. And yeah, I mean, I think the actual the Burt Bet crowd is really good because I've, I keep running into people who've said, oh, I've seen you talk at either of the Burt Beck and I've been now twice with you and once mm -hmm. to a, a sports class. And they're like, we had two working at South uh, West Ham for, for a point. And I was like, wow, that is, that's pretty cool. That's a small world, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, to be fair, I sometimes forget where I've met people. So I don't know how many, if I had to like count, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think for me, like the, when I was in uni and I was really working and networking hard, nobody would talk to me. Mm. Nobody would talk to me. No one would respond to my emails. And that's really tough because you're trying and you're trying and you're trying it. And, and literally, you know, what everyone says, I'll just work harder or just email him. And you email people, they don't reply. And like, I do my best to do every, you know, reply to everything. Um, but, you know, it, the people who did help me then, in, in actual fact, my two mentors who, who helped me when I was younger, I'm now at a point where I'm more senior than they are now. But I make sure that any time I keep in touch with them now and I keep, and one of them asked me for a favor, absolutely no problem, it's done. And yeah. I pulled out all the stops to get his favor done because he'd done that to me when he didn't have to seven, eight, eight nine years ago. And so it's really important to not only keep the connections, but also you, you never know who's going to come and be more important than you or need, you'll need them in the future. And there are very few people, not everyone likes me, but very few people would say that I'm either a bad person or untrustworthy or whatever, but um, I try and keep in touch with everyone, whether that's my friends, it, it, you know, outside of work or inside of work as well. 
anyone I work with, just keep in touch, you know, send them a message every now and then, especially now in the downtime, I found it a really good time to go through my phone book and almost mm-hmm. just text people and just say like, Hey, what's up? What's happening in life? You know? And I think that's really, really important because you never know where someone's going to end up and, and you know, you can help each other out. No, I definitely think so. And I think on that email point that you mentioned about people not getting back to you, I always think that the people that spend the time thinking about what they're going to say to the recipient of the email or the phone call or the WhatsApp message or whatever, they're more likely to be the diligent type that have spent some time thinking about what I'm going to send this message. I need to get it right. I need to personalize it. I don't need to make it 17 paragraphs. I need to make it snappy. I need to be thinking about why this person would then respond back to me. Mm -hmm. And that takes actually a hell of a lot of thinking time to actually personalize for each time. And that's the thing that I find very impressive on the people that do it well is you you stand and notice and they become very noticeable very quickly rather than, Mm -hmm. dear sir, I'm really interested in um, becoming involved in the football industry. Please, can you give me any hints and tips? And the truth is with those type of emails, you know, you know that they probably sent it to 50 other people as well. And it's not that we're all that so important and are full of ego, but what you actually want is someone that has given some real thought and depth to why um, this is right for them and the reason why they're getting in touch with you specifically. And it's getting over that hurdle that makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that I try and basically go through different layers when people message me. So the first one will be like normally through LinkedIn or through, yeah, normally through LinkedIn. And I'll kind of come back with a, you know, a, 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 not a template, but like a fairly standard response and say, look, this is kind of where I've come from. And then if you have any specific questions, let me know. And then based on the, some people are like, okay, great. Thank you. And then you're like, all right, well, I've helped them. They're happy. That's fine. But then you know, some people come back with some really good in-depth questions. I'm like, wow, this person really cares. We thought about, you know what, let's grab one. Let's grab a FaceTime. Let's grab a phone call. And, you know, like I never say like, I'm going to always book myself in for an hour on these things. And sometimes I'm talking for like two hours. I'm like, this person's brilliant. Like definitely, definitely want to keep in touch with them. Sometimes like, look, I've helped them. You know, I'm not interested. They're not interested, but like, fine, great. Um, but what I, it does for me is it, it, in my mind builds a pool of people who I can potentially either hire myself. And I did that, you know, the young lad Barney, who, who's in my team now at West Ham and the first team, he came straight out of uni, but he'd been in touch for two, three years and when he applied he applied along with like 18 other people that i was mentoring which was quite difficult because i was a hiring manager and having to pick between the yeah. people that i'm helping but actually he did he was not my pick and he, he was not someone that i really thought at the beginning would ever really challenge and he blew me away at every single interview stage and he ended up getting the job and he deserves it he's brilliant and like between him and emma who i'd never met emma, never met emma before she applied cold, read a CV, liked it. She got through all the interviews and she was brilliant as well. And the three of us make a fantastic team. And the one thing that I'm really, really proud of at West Ham is, is the fantastic team we've got. We complement each other. We get on well. It's, it's really good. But having Barney, it was funny because Barney knew the answers that I wanted because I'd coached him on interview technique. And then he knew that some of my questions were things that I'd asked before. And so he nailed it. And I'm like... It's not even like it's not even a point to him. It's just like he's memorized what I've told him three years ago. But Good, well, you know, listening is sometimes yeah. one of the most important aspects of things as well. Hundred percent. And he was like, neither of them had ever come ever come from a football club. I want you to come in excited and wanting to learn. 
and wanting to get on board with the way that I do things and also challenge that as well. I'm not saying that I'm a you know, dictator. I'm like, this is what we're going to do. But I don't want to hear like, oh, we did that at Chelsea. We did that at Man United. It's so boring for me. That's really not interesting. It's good for me to talk to my colleagues across the clubs and find out what they do but not to say we're not going to try something because it works differently than another club. And Southampton and West Ham are such, such different clubs that my approach to player care completely has changed at West Ham and it did at Southampton, which is great because it's, it's you know, made me a better person. But um, for me, really, really not interesting to have someone from another club. Having said that, most other, when they hired my replacement at Southampton, the job description said three years work experience in football. Well, by that own metric i wouldn't have been hired as my own replacement which is mad and and so on my applications for for barney and emma's jobs it said no experience required and i went through hundreds of interviews hundreds of cvs and resumes and everything like that and we got two excellent people from outside of football who were desperate to do it mm. and they're excellent and, and, and now i couldn't be happier with them as with us as a group but it shows that this kind of the old tried and tested way of, yeah, we've got to work for another club or yeah, we get him from Tottenham and we get him from Chelsea. No, I, I don't want to do that. I want to get people with new ideas, experiences from outside of football and life experiences. And I get quite a, a lot of messages. I'm not really sure if you do as well about people who are older, who are, you know, different life experiences. Emma's older than I am. she never worked in professional sport. I had a guy, the guy came fifth in the West Ham jobs when I first started, uh, you know, for my assistants. I think he was 62 and genuinely like he'd been, he'd worked at a telecoms community uh, place. He was, he was a cab driver and I loved him. He was brilliant. He was really, really good. And he said to me right at the beginning, oh, you probably just count me because my age. I said, I don't care. Like I'm looking for the right people. Then it didn't work out, but he was so close and he was so on it and he got it. And I thought he'd be really good. And he had something completely different. So people who are like, you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever, 60, it doesn't matter. It's how about how good you are. And I, I, I hope that other clubs would be as open-minded when hiring people as, as I try to be. Mate, we've gone on for um, a lot longer than, uh, than usual, but that's our, that's our usual chat, really. We end up yeah. putting uh, ourselves in for an hour's coffee chat and end up for about three. <laughs> but I definitely don't want to take it too much longer time on, um, on your evening. Other than to say, firstly, thank you very much for, for taking the time to chat and just sharing your career experiences. I don't want to try and put too much of a downer on the evening by um, talking too much about um, COVID-19 stuff. But what I try and do at the, um, the end of the podcast is just briefly ask everyone or each person that I'm chatting with um, what type of content you're watching, what interesting books are you listening to, uh, reading rather, what interesting podcasts are you listening to, apart from Done Deal, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, what, what type of stuff is inspiring you or just um, taking your mind off the wider world problems right now? Yeah, I think for me, this has been an opportunity to shut down in a way that I'm not normally able to during the season. So I probably have not got a, a reading list of 30 books or anything like that. Um, I've tried to spend some time on Duolingo with my French, um, which is an average GCSE level probably. Um, but to be honest, I, I've really tried to switch off as well. And I think that's as important as as growing your skill set. It's just come back refreshed because it's going to be a long, potentially two seasons in one coming up. Um, for me, yeah, I, I've, I've, um, I watched that Tiger King. I really enjoyed that. I mean, again, not at all educational. <laughs> I think I lost brain cells watching that, but absolutely adored that. I loved it. Like I rewatched the American office, which is kind of like one of my go-to, like just switch off shows. Alan Partridge just watched it. It just makes me happy really. Um, 
but you know what like just enjoying life slowing down not worrying about everything 24 hours a day i had a phone call at seven o'clock at night yesterday and it felt like odd because i'd not had one in three weeks so <laughs> um but you know like also trying to keep things ticking over but really for me it's about personally being able to take this opportunity as a positive as much as you can and obviously a very sad situation but spend time with my family i'm out in the countryside go for walks you know enjoy the fresh air enjoy time with my parents who you know, I don't get to see as much as I want to. So for me, that's better than any book or any any sort of educational tool. Um, I am doing uh, a course off at Loughborough um, with the uh, Wellbeing Science Institute, which is a fantastic, fantastic uh, program run by Steve Johnson, who's Australian. Um, I've done two courses up, two sessions up in Loughborough, and we've got he's doing these daily um, or bi-daily um, little snippets, and that's excellent. So something slightly educational, but. Um, but yeah, just really trying at this point just to slow down a bit and enjoy the time while I've got it and then um, get ready for, for the season restarting, hopefully. Well, thanks. And on that note, yeah, keep recharging because I'm sure, please God, when the season comes back, it's going to be um, a little bit manic, to put it mildly. So on that <laughs> note, thanks very much again, pal. And um, look forward to seeing you hopefully in the flesh soon for um, an actual physical coffee rather than a virtual <laughs> chat. Looking forward to it, mate. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.